All right, who's ready to get in the Word this morning? Let's open to Matthew chapter 24, if you will, please. Matthew chapter 24, as we continue our journey through the Olivet Discourse. And today we'll pick it up in verse 36 in a message entitled, As the Days of Noah. Verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away so also will, be, uh, will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, He would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We continue with complicating sections, complicated sections throughout this incredible passage. There are two major interpretations of this particular portion of this passage. And it has to do with what Jesus is referring to concerning the day. And the interpretations are as such. Number one, some believe that this is referring to the rapture of the church. The moment that Jesus Christ comes and snatches his church from the earth. The rapture of the church is separate than the second coming. It's an independent event. The second coming and the rapture are not one and the same. And there are many people who believe that this is referring to the rapture of the church. Jesus spoke about the rapture in John 14, 1 through 4. It should be on the screen behind me. When he said to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, there's that, the rapture of the church, we believe, and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know." Paul went on to talk about this event in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, he uses that term to indicate that this was something previously unknown. And it is now being revealed to the church through his apostolic authority. He says, We shall not all sleep or we shall not all die, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So there is a group of people who will not experience physical death, but be removed, be taken. Now how do I know that? Well, because of what he says in Thessalonians that we'll look at in just a moment. It's a unique event. It is an event that we believe Jesus uh, institutes to remove his church prior to the seven years of tribulation that will fall upon this earth after the removal of the church. And those years, of course, are mentioned and described in Revelation 6 through 19, if you want to know what will take place during those seven years. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, Paul describes this event again. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. In the Latin it is rapturos. It means rapture, or in the Greek it is harpazo, to be taken or snatched up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another with these words. So the rapture of the church is meant to be a doctrine to comfort us. And why do I believe it will happen before the tribulation period? Because Paul goes on to say to the Thessalonians that we as Christians have not been appointed to wrath and will be spared that moment. Now there are other good uh, Christians who believe that the rapture of the church will happen after the tribulation period. Hey, if they want to stay, that's their prerogative. Okay? If they want to wait for a later train, that's up to them. I say that affectionately. But I believe that the church will be removed prior to the seven-year tribulation period that the world is set to experience just prior to the physical return of Jesus Christ. And there are many who believe that this passage is speaking of the rapture of the church. However, there are others who also too believe in a pre-tribulation rapture that believe that Jesus is referring to something else here that is later indicated in Matthew chapter 25. So if you go forward one chapter, starting in verse 31. And rather than the ones taken to be uh, with the Lord and to be raptured here in our text, they're taken for the purpose of judgment, something completely different. And so in verse 31 of chapter 25, I want to show you this also, and then we'll take a look at our passage this morning together. Verse 31 of 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, He will sit on the throne of His glory. So we are clearly talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ here. The physical return of Jesus Christ. Verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate from them uh, one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. In Israel during that time, I learned more about sheep and goats this week than I ever truly wanted to know. But apparently they were very similar. At certain stages of their development, it was hard to tell them apart. Now, I'll have to take their word for it. Growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, I haven't had much use in the identifying of goats from sheep. But it was a practice that a skilled shepherd would do because they could be confused and a sheep might be uh, placed within the fold of goats, etc. And they didn't want that to occur. In verse 33, And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. After the physical return of Jesus Christ occurs, this event appears to take place, which we'll see in just a moment, where he separates the sheep from the goats, those individuals who are his at that moment and who are alive and have survived the tribulation period, will be ushered into the millennial kingdom, Revelation chapter 20, and will enjoy Christ physically here on this earth, reigning from Jerusalem. But those who are goats, and I don't mean that to be derogatory, well, Jesus said it, so blame him. Um, those who are not his, referred to as goats here, they will be separated for judgment. And Jesus then goes on in verse 35 to say, I'm sorry, verse 34, excuse me. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you who blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, 
and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and gave you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. So those at this point appear to have had compassion on brothers and sisters who were also going through the tribulation period and were willing to minister to them, to care for them, to show compassion upon them. Now we know from the book of Revelation that could be a very dangerous thing for them to do because it would also identify themselves to their persecutors as fellow Christians, risking their own lives to minister and to take care of those who were also in Christ Jesus. But I don't think it should escape us that God does consider how we treat one another. And one of the characteristics that jumped off the page to me was the characteristic of selflessness. That these individuals were willing to go above and beyond themselves to take care and to minister and to serve one another. I think we must be very careful today in our self-centered, self-consumed culture that we Christians do not begin to reflect the culture but continue to reflect Christ by continuing to serve one another selflessly. I think it's imperative. I think that will separate us from the world in a way that distinguishes our true love for one another. As one person said, it's easy to be selfish, but it's much more difficult to be selfless. I think all of us as Christians need to examine our hearts at times and ask ourselves, has the fundamental cornerstone of my Christian faith become, it's all about me? Because Jesus prayed the night before his crucifixion, he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. The ultimate example of selflessness. And yet, today we seem to avoid selflessness and run to selfishness because we want to, again, make it all about us. But as Christians, the entire context of the understanding of Christian agape love is selflessness, sacrifice. But there was another group of people that were standing on his left. In verse 41, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There is continued debate in Christianity about the true existence of hell. I find that ironic because Jesus spoke about hell more than any of them did. And here he clearly articulates a destination that sure is uh, descriptive of the concept of hell that we have. And he says clearly, that he asks those to depart, commands those to depart from him at this moment into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Interesting word there, did not serve you. 
Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment for the righteousness and the righteous, but the righteous into eternal life. So very clear delineation between the two. Now, I want to be clear here. They had not earned their merit and salvation by doing these things. They demonstrated their salvation by either doing it or not doing it. They trust the Lord enough to serve others, their brothers and sisters in Christ, the least of those amongst them, because of their salvation in Jesus Christ, because of their love that God had filled their heart with, realizing first and foremost that they loved God because He first loved them and then was able to love their neighbors as themselves. And the rejection and their inability of these others to care for those people is because they didn't care. They didn't have that love. They didn't go out of their way. They didn't identify themselves with Christ, but apart from Christ. And it is also clear that at this moment there's eternal life and eternal damnation out of the mouth of Jesus directly. So there's a group of people that believe that what he is speaking about in 24 when he takes one and leaves one is that the one that is taken is taken to judgment and the one that is left is allowed to go into the millennial kingdom. So let us now travel back to chapter 24. But of that day, no one knows that the, not even, uh, uh, excuse me, rewind. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So those who see the rapture here will say, and I think rightfully so, that we know that no one knows the day or the hour of Jesus' physical return right now. But the Bible is clear that when we see the rapture of the church, and when we see the Antichrist entering into a covenant agreement with the Jewish people, Daniel chapter 9, that seven years later we can anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. So I find that very interesting. That is true. No one knows the day or the hour. For us on this side, we should not in any way predict a time or a date. Now, day and an hour in the Greek language means exact time. That's what they're saying here. The exact time of his arrival. We don't know when that will be. And those who argue for the indication this indicates the rapture will say we don't know when the rapture is going to occur. And they're absolutely right. The rapture could happen right now. Darn it. Because I said that, it didn't happen. And he says that neither do the angels. Angels are unaware of this, but only God the Father knows when this moment will occur. Now, others say that he's referring to specifically the second coming. And as a result, he then therefore embraces the events that take place in chapter 25. But notice what he says here in verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So now the question is, what aspects of the days of Noah are we to look for? And this again is of great debate. Now he clearly articulates here in our text by stating they, referring to those Uh, before the days of Noah, before the flood, which is an apocalyptic event. It was a worldwide judgment by God of the entire world that they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered in the ark. So there's a couple of things that we need to see here. 
when he talks about they, he's talking about those who did not enter the ark. He specifically identifies Noah and his family. So he's addressing those who did not realize, just continuing in marriage and giving in marriage. What does he mean by that? Well, as one commentator stated, he said this, It will be business as usual. In the world when Jesus returns suggests similar conditions before the flood and before the start of the day of the Lord. Meaning people are just going to go about life in an indifference towards God. A complete and utter indifference towards God. That's what Jesus highlights here concerning the days of Noah. That the characteristics of the last days, the conditions of the world's hearts and minds, is that they would be indifferent to God. That sure explains a lot today, doesn't it? We see that parallel greatly with the indifference that we continue to see and discover in every aspect of our society. But there were other aspects of the days of Noah also. So if you turn with me to Genesis chapter 6, let's look at some of them together. Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 specifically. As we look at Genesis 6, we clearly get some details concerning the last days. Now, Genesis is before Revelation in your Bible, way before. So let's notice what is said here. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, uh, uh, wives for themselves of all whom they had ch- chose. Very interesting event. And again, if you want to start a debate amongst Christians, just bring up this subject. It is a personal favorite of some here in our congregation. Who were the sons of God? Some believe that they were simply uh, outside the tribe of Seth. And these were relationships that were prohibited. And this intermarriage and this intermingling between the various tribes was prohibited by God. Well, if that's the case, then we have some problems. Because the offspring of these relationships were very unique. So unique, they were called giants, but more specifically, they were called Nephilim. There you go, and everybody jump up and down who like to talk about the Nephilim. Some kind of supernatural hybrid creature. I know, it sounds like X-Files, doesn't it? Some hybrid creature that was brought about by these relationships, indicating that the sons of God most likely were angels, fallen angels specifically. Angels that did not keep their first abode. Angels that eventually found themselves chained in the abyss. I know, it's pretty cool stuff, isn't it? And from these relationships were born these creatures called the, I can't even say it, Nephilim, because I knew there were going to be people like, awesome, you know, for finally talking about the Nephilim. Uh, and as a result, God brought about judgment. God brought about judgment because it appeared that this was a satanic attempt to uh, pollute the bloodline that eventually would bring forth Messiah. Now, those who oppose this view would say, well, angels don't seem to have uh, a gender identity. They're masculine, but they don't marry in heaven, and they don't seem to have reproduction uh, features and so forth. Well, they most likely, these fallen angels, and, you know, inhabited men and brought about these creatures. And God judged the world right after the birth of these Nephilim. You know, and so it's a unique word. It's used in Hebrew. It's identified here. If you watch Ancient Aliens, you'll hear all about the Nephilim and their relationship to aliens and so forth. 
I can't believe I just said that from here. (laughs) And so let us understand that something spiritually unique has taken place here. I think we can all agree on that. One of the great tragedies of the current modern church is the influence of naturalism upon it. Now, what do I mean by that? Naturalism is the idea that nothing exists outside the physical world. To even talk about the supernatural, you are breaking a boundary that would be considered uh, intellectually appropriate and scientific. The Bible clearly tells us and shows us that there's a supernatural world. There are also well-meaning believers who believe that all demonic activity ceased with the first coming of Jesus Christ. I don't know how they read the book of Acts then. There's clearly demonic activity after the ascension of Jesus Christ. As there is clearly demonic activity today. Demons are real. Fallen angels are real. And they are still actively involved in our society today. Their influence, their direction, their, uh, their cruelty can still be seen today. But naturalism would often tell Christians that Satan isn't really a, a real fallen angel. He's simply the personification of evil. No, that's not what the Bible says at all. He is real. And God dealt with him by casting him out. And one third of the angels fell with him at that time, the Bible tells us. Today, let us understand that I believe that as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, demonic activity will begin to ramp up. And as a result, we, like John instructed us in his first epistle, must be discerning, testing the spirits to see if they are of God. Let us be aware that these things do occur. Now, everyone who struggles and everyone who has difficulties, it's not always the cause of Satan. I saw a cartoon once that I really appreciate. It was Satan sitting on a curb with his head in his hand. And he says, those Christians blame me for everything. Personal responsibility would show me that not only can I be spiritually influenced, but as a Christian, I believe we cannot be possessed. But I can be influenced. But the greater difficulty that I have is the the war between the spirit and my flesh. That's where Paul targets that the flesh can be just as sinister as the demonic force. Often it is that flesh that is stimulated in the world, which of course is controlled by Satan. And in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The world system is created to tempt us away from God. And those temptations, which is the only string on Satan's guitar, do you realize that? That in his two most crucial campaigns and battles, Eve and Adam and Jesus, he used the same weapon, didn't he? Temptation. If he had something better, I have no doubt that he would have pulled it out at his opportunity to stumble Christ and to negate the validity of his ministry, right? If Satan had something more, he would have approach Jesus in that capacity, but he didn't. It was once again temptation that he used, as he used with Adam and Eve. And of course, where Adam and Eve failed, Christ succeeded. Temptation is the manner in which Satan approaches us, and he stimulates the flesh. He tempts the flesh, and as a result, we are then encouraged through that temptation to do things outside of God's prescribed manner. Often things that lead us into bondage. You know, it it may be acceptable for us to drink as Christians, but let us understand that that drinking can lead us into bondage. We must be very careful. The same is true with pornography, right? Right? 
it exploits an aspect of our natural uh, creation. God created us to have physical intimacy, husband and wife, right? Satan wants to exploit that and bring us into uh, sexual uh, relations apart from marriage to stimulate ourselves through pornography in that way. And so let us be careful because that's what, that's what Satan will do. He will exploit those natural areas that the Spirit has been given to us for the purpose of self-control. Meaning we can have self-control in those areas so we do not sin. This is what Paul meant when he says, I brought all aspects of my flesh under the subjection of Christ. You know, when I hear about the fruits of the Spirit, rarely do I ever hear anyone highlight self-control, right? And we all struggle. We all have difficulties in various areas of our earthly lives. I get it. We're all works in progress. That's why we should be showing each other love and grace and encouraging each other. But once we understand how Satan is going to come at us, we can prepare for it, right? And this is why Paul said, let us walk in the Spirit and we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That's our answer. Filling our hearts and mind with the Word of God. Walking in subjection and obedience to it through the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, let us know demonic activities will, will increase. Revelation clearly articulates there's going to be some demonic activity like we've never seen before during those days. But verse 5, continue, let's look, continue at six, chapter 6. Notice what he says here in verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with men forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. Meaning they've only got 120 years left. And there were giants on the earth. And here's that word, you know, Nephilim. Here we go. In those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw, notice number 2 here, verse 5, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his hearts were only evil continually. Now I want to stop there for a moment. Because when we read this verse... I often get the impression that Christians automatically run to a picture within their mind of an apocalyptic world that has just, you know, been devastated. You've seen the movies and so forth. Everything is a desert and they're walking around because there's no gas or no water and it's just lawlessness everywhere. Mad Max is one of them. Isn't it good to know that Mel Gibson went from that to the Passion of the Christ? It's pretty interesting. (laughs) But let's think about this. That certainly does not describe the antediluvian world. That's the world before the flood. They were walking in the indifference towards God, and the thoughts of their mind were wickedness always. What is one of the greatest aspects of wickedness it's rebellion against god it's idolatry the idol today in our society is not so much materialism which it is idols uh, it is for some in in a way but may i make the argument that i believe the idol of today is self is self it is interesting that as i look in the identity of the root origins of what's called the progressive church movement, which is only an off-ramp to walk away from Christianity altogether. At the heart of it, and everything else is symptoms of that heart condition, at the heart of it is self. Creating a God that I want. Creating a, a standard that I desire and approve of. It's self. 
Jesus said very clearly that if you want to follow me, the very first thing he said is deny yourself, take up your cross and, and follow after me. Very interesting. When Adam and Eve were tempted, Eve was tempted with what? Self. You too will be like God. And of course, encased in that was the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It's self. Today, we have elevated self to the place of deity. I just want you to chew on that. I just want you to think about that. Because I believe that this is the cornerstone identity of the days of Noah. They walked in indifference to God, promoting themselves, and didn't realize that judgment was coming upon them, even though they saw Noah building the ark, even though they saw this extraordinary thing occur before them, and yet they didn't realize what was happening. And have you noticed that everything in our world society, in our world culture today, bolsters self in every single capacity? And this is why we continue to try to make Christianity appealing to those by appealing to self. For the last 20 years, pastors over and over and over again in America have tried to convince people how Christianity can be a mere self-help and meet all their self-needs, creating a Christianity far from that of Scripture. When the core of Christianity is to die to self. The core of Christianity is to be selfless and to love people unconditionally in a selfless, sacrificial manner. You are never going to sacrifice yourself for the purpose of Christ if you're all about yourself. That should be a quote that I see on every one of your social medias afterwards. Come on, give me a shout out there. It's about self. And notice... That he specifically, every intent, and that word is really fascinating, of the thoughts of his heart. This is something that was going on inside of them. Was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man for whom I have created from the face of the earth, both men and beasts, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The days of Noah before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Back to Matthew 24, if you will. Verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. And again, here's now the focal point of the debate. Are these individuals taken in the rapture? Or are they taken in judgment? So if we look at the Greek words, they don't help us to identify either or. The word taken there simply means to be taken along or to bring along. And the word left there means to be left behind. So it doesn't really clarify it for us any further by the uh, definitions of those Greek words. But there will be a separation. Both men and women, the separation does not discriminate, it does not favor, it isn't selective in the sense that it pulls one demographic above the other, and therefore we are encouraged to watch. And in verses 42 to 44, there are three words that I want to bring to your attention. Watch, therefore, and watch is the first word. For you do not know what hour or the exact time your Lord is coming. It means to be alert. These are commands, imperatives in the Greek. Watch, be alert, and be awake. Oh my, there are many, many Christians that are just sleeping, aren't there? They, are, they seem to be 
absolutely disconnected with what's happening around them. We need to wake up. We need to see what is happening around us. I once spoke at a conference on the the issue of Christian subculture and the effect of it within the body of Christ. And what I meant by that in the, in the lesson was that we as Christians had created a marketed subculture here in the United States of America. And as a result, we as Christians ran to that subculture. We hid within that subculture and we, never, uh, we lost our, in, our ability to be influencers upon the world. We created our own little world, apart from the world. And at first you may say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, here's what's wrong with that. Christ never asked us to retreat in that way. He asked us to be in the world, but be different from the world. That's what he asked us to be. So we could influence people for Christ. We could encourage them. We could be lights amongst the darkness. You can't do that if you're hiding it in the subculture or in the basket, right? You can't do it that way. We had our own TV stations. We had our own radio stations. We had our own stores. We had everything. And we created this subculture. And one of the things I was so grateful for is when that subculture began to dissipate and deteriorate. Because it forced Christians to be Christians in the world again. Not of the world, but in the world, okay? Talking with people, novelty, right? Interacting, let them seeing Christ within us. And while we were hiding in that subculture, I don't know what we thought the world, what was going to happen in the world, but the decay went faster, didn't it? Because we weren't salt and light. We weren't in that position where we could encourage people for the purposes of Christ. We couldn't say to the world that there's a higher standard of morality. And so what happened? It was like going on a vertical slide. And then something happened in the hearts of Christians amongst that subculture, and it was this. An us and them mentality. Now again, please know what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we aren't to be different. I'm not saying that we're not part of the kingdom of God. We are. I'm not saying that um, we are better than anybody in the world because that's what was starting to be uh, happening in the hearts and the minds of individuals. Self-righteousness, because we were all affirming one another in this little, oh yeah, oh the world stinks, oh yeah. The world, you know. It's like, but do you ever talk to the world? Do you ever talk to your neighbor who doesn't know Christ? Or do you avoid them at all cost? Do you pull into your driveway, see your neighbor cutting the grass, and you're just kind of playing on your phone? I'm going to wait till he goes in before I go because I don't want to talk to that guy. Or you pull into your driveway, open the garage door, and you're like, whoomp! Now I don't have to deal with anybody. Part of me felt that too many Christians were way too comfortable during the lockdowns because now they didn't have to interact with people. Let me ask you a question. Wasn't it someone who interacted with you that led you to Jesus Christ? Wasn't it someone who took a risk? Wasn't it someone that was willing to sacrifice, be selfless? Wherever you are, and if you are around people who do not know the Lord, is where God has you at this moment, so be a light to them. Don't retreat from them. We need to be alert. We need to be awake. We need to understand the signs of the times because the return of Christ is imminent. And once He removes the church, we know what's going to happen next, right? And frankly, I have come to the point in my life that I don't want anyone to suffer that. I don't. That's going to be horrific. When they stand before the great white throne judgment, I am not going to be celebrating at their demise. God said himself, I get no joy from the destruction of the wicked. Why should we? Now, every person's going to be held accountable, Christian and non-Christian alike. 
Every Christian person is going to have to stand before Jesus Christ in one way or another, at the Bema Seat or at the Great White Throne Judgment. At that point, then he righteously can judge and decide good from bad. But we have an opportunity now that we must take advantage of and we must be alert and awake to do it. The second thing he says is in verse 43. But know this. The word know is the word that I want you to see. Again, the imperative there. That if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken in too. Living in Schaumburg, we have a problem in Schaumburg right now. Thieves have targeted Schaumburg, stealing catalytic converters from cars. And in our parking lot, in our condominium's parking lot alone, five have been stolen already in the last six months. The metals from them can be apparently uh, used and capital, you know, uh, traded and marketed and and uh, they, they're very expensive. It sometimes costs $2,000 to replace. And we had a, a neighbor in our building who was very, very, very angry about it because her car was, you know, vandalized and stolen. Her catalytic converter was stolen. And she said, you know, we have to do something about this. If you're not going to install more cameras in through the lot, then I'm going to sit on my balcony and watch the parking lot all night. I said, we would love you to do that. (laughs) You know, I'm on the association board. And God has really sanctified me through being on the association board. Uh, But she wanted to watch and she wanted to be uh, uh, able to catch those thieves. And I said, boy, I really wish Christians had that same diligence about watching and knowing the time and when our Savior's returning. Now, I have to address an issue, okay? Because we have to be honest here. It's church. We have to be honest in church. I read that somewhere. There's one thing, being aware of everything that is happening in the world. It's another thing to be consumed by everything that is happening in the world, The primary text for all of our enlightenment concerning the last days always must remain the Bible. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Even though we have vast vehicles of information today, let us be careful that we are not spending more time in in searching those things than we are in our time in Scripture. Because 2,000 years have passed since Christ's first coming. And there have been a lot of historical events that could easily have been identified as events of the last days, right? Now, please, I'm not saying that we are not seeing extraordinary things today. We are. And we certainly are seeing the world move in that direction very quickly, okay? But my whole request here, my whole ask here is that you spend time in God's Word Because that will keep you grounded. I have met many Christians who have gotten so far off base because they continue to go down that rabbit hole, you know, (laughs) the the pantheon of information YouTube, and they continue down that rabbit hole that they lose sight of what God is actually saying. Because not only do we need to be aware, but also we need to be occupying until He comes, right? Right? And so there's a real need for balance in this endeavor. Now, I spoke to that side of the extreme. Let me speak to the other. Putting your head in the sand like an ostrich as a Christian isn't going to do you any good. I have spoken to Christians who are doing what I believe is just that in hopes that everything goes away. And I started to see this when everybody was asking for the return to normal, okay? The return to normal. Well, if your idea is normal to allow you to continue in apathy, carnally, carnal, uh, carnality, and complacency, I don't want to return to that normal. So those are the extremes on both ends. 
again, God would have us in the middle. Let us be aware, but let us also occupy until he comes. And let us understand that this world is not where we're going to find the eternal answers that we are looking for. And we also know that this world is passing away with all that is within it. So we cannot hang our hopes on this world. We can't do it. And I think that's where we should look to balance ourselves. Verse 44. Therefore, here's the third word, be, and it's accompanied by the second word after it, ready, be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Be ready. Jesus said when he returns, will he find faith in this world? I think three of the greatest enemies of Christianity are complacency, carnality, and apathy. I think we need to be very careful that in the prosperity that we've enjoyed and continue to enjoy even now in America, that we don't get lost within it. We need to be ready. And that being ready isn't just simply climbing on top of your roof and looking for Jesus to return. It means to be actively busy about his business. Trust me, if you're serving God and you're serving as a missionary or you're witnessing for the faith and you're busy with your Christian life, you're not going to miss the rapture, okay? Well, I'm afraid if I don't sit on top of my roof and just look up, I'm going to miss the rapture. The rapture will find you, trust me. You just be serving. You just be living for Him, full on for Jesus Christ. And it doesn't mean you have to put your life on hold. It doesn't mean you don't further what, uh, where God has you and continue to walk on the path that God has placed you. I'm not saying that. It means to be ready that at any time, at any place, God can interrupt my life for His purposes and for His glory in whatever fashion He seems fit. Some see this as the rapture of the church. Others see this as the separation from the sheep and from the goats. I'll leave that with you.